kids are walking out, I'll invite you to join me in John chapter 6. We are continuing in this gospel account, and we um, have been in John 6 for a few weeks now, but this discourse, the bread of life discourse, we opened last week and we picked back up this week in verses 41 through 59. It is a beautiful text on God's sovereign grace. But I'll tell you, for, for, for some, this text is going to be it's going to be a bit earth-shattering. It, it, it might bust up some, some long-held thoughts. Some of us, on the other hand, might be, for the first time in our lives, tempted to shout amen. <laughs> By the way, you're free to do that, not just in texts that you happen to have waited for me to preach, just as the Spirit leads you. Um, there you go. Thank you. Thank you, Roger. Uh, but some of us are going to struggle with this. And you'll hear next week that the people in this day struggled as well. That's okay. That's okay. We're not here to answer all of the questions. But we are here to come to the Word of God and to behold the glory and the grace of our God. As we prepare, as we prepare to look to this Word... Would you bow with me? Father, I ask that, that you would give us open and submissive hearts to receive from you, to see just the, the magnitude of your grace for us. And I pray that as we see and receive, we would not be left unchanged. Do this we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Because this is the inerrant and infallible word of God. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. 
Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. This is the word of the Lord. They grumbled. Jesus has just said, I'm the bread that comes down from heaven. They hear it and they grumble. And why would they not? Let's just acknowledge that this is hard to understand. It's hard to understand when we look and listen through the lens of the flesh. We we grumble too. Let's acknowledge that on some level that is an appropriate response. But only on some level. Maybe... Maybe you hear these words and grumble too. So let's, let's dig a bit deeper. Why do you think they grumbled? You think they grumbled because they didn't understand what Jesus was saying? Or perhaps, did they grumble because they didn't like what he said? Maybe. A bit of both. They thought they knew this Jesus. They thought they knew where he came from. They knew his folks. This is the son of Joseph and and Mary. How does he say, I come down from heaven? You know, on one hand, this discussion was confusing for them. On the other hand, it was offensive. Who does he think he is? Sounds a bit grandiose, don't you think? Jesus heard their grumbling. And he responded. He responded by saying, you don't understand because you're not able. Verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. No one can come to me doesn't mean that no one's allowed. It means no one is able of their own accord. You and I, we we don't have a moral or spiritual ability to come to Christ on our own. We we often get caught up in, in intramural debates about free will. But but when we talk about free will, we're we're missing we're missing the, the, the main point. Free will is not the question. Free ability is the question. Ability is the proper framework for us to think through. You see, you and I, we're we're free to act in accord with our nature. The problem is, everyone in this room and in the vicinity of our hearing shares a common heritage. We're born with a sin nature. And the sin nature limits our 
ability. We're free to act within our nature, but no ability to act outside of it. Our will is in bondage to the nature. We are born with the sin nature. So Romans 8, 7 and 8 puts it this way. But a mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Not able. Those who are in the flesh cannot or not able to please God. In the flesh, in Romans, in the flesh, in all of the New Testament, speaks to our, uh, our sin nature, our inborn nature. The nature we inherit from our first parents and the nature that we embrace as we go about the activity of sinning. Have you ever been walking out in the woods and heard that ominous rattle? If you have, you know exactly what I'm talking about. You walk up and you see this rattlesnake coiled up. Now, when that rattlesnake is coiled up, it, it's not inviting you to come and, and cuddle with it. <laughs> That's not its nature. You hear that rattle, you see that snake coiled, and you know that it is about to act out of its nature. It is meant to strike, to bite, to kill, to eat. It's what you expect a rattlesnake to do, to act out of its nature. It cannot, it will not do anything otherwise. It's not able to cuddle up with you and have you pet the snake. You see, you and I, we're born with a certain nature. And we act out of that nature, and it's to be expected. It's what we are able to do. And Jesus is telling us that in our flesh nature, we don't have the moral, spiritual ability to come to him. It's a pretty ugly picture, don't you think? It's a, it's a picture that we don't like to hear about ourselves. And so when we read John 44, or John 6, 44, it, it sounds a bit depressing, but there is a beautiful word in John 6, 44. Unless. Everything hinges on that one word, unless. Unless the Father who sent me draws him. What, what Jesus is telling us here in the gospel about him is that the Father is the first mover. <laughs> the Father acts first to draw us to him. The Father must move first and praise the Lord. He does move first in the elect. It's what we read in Ephesians 1.4 that he, the Father, chose us in love before the foundation of the world to be drawn to Jesus. But what is this drawing? The word translated here is draw, actually in the original is a it's a bit more forceful than we might imagine when we hear tell of the Father drawing us. The word means to drag or pull by physical force. Often because there's resistance or at bare minimum inertia holding the object of the dragging in place. 
It's the same word used in Acts 21 verse 30 to describe how the crowds seized Paul and drug him out of the temple. It's the same word used in John chapter 21, verses 6 and 11 to describe after the disciples had this miraculous catch of fish, how they hauled it onto the shore at great physical exertion. This is the drawing that Jesus describes, the drawing, the dragging that the Father does as he drags us out of our old sin nature. And into a new, beautiful, life-giving nature dominated by the Spirit of God. But this is not a physical dragging that takes place. It's not a physical dragging that, that God does. No, it is a powerful influencing of the mind, of the heart, of the will. And that powerful influencing is the work that is wrought by the Holy Spirit as He produces in us a living faith through the new birth that He brings by removing our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. Friends, this is, this is the Lord God rescuing us from self. And it's akin to him rescuing us from a burning building and us sitting there enjoying the warmth of the heat. He picks us up on his shoulder and takes us out, rescuing us from our sin. And it's all of God, all of grace, because he has loved us first. That's what it means for the Father to initiate. To draw. But Jesus goes on to say that, that drawing that the Father does, it's effective. Verse 45, it is written in the prophets and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Listen, we, we must come to Jesus. That's man's responsibility in salvation. We must come to Jesus. We are responsible for that. But by God's sovereignty, by his sovereign grace, we will come. Those who are being drawn will come. It's what we talked about last week in verse 37. When we read, all that the, when Jesus says, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Again, this grace that we talk about does not mean that Jesus is nice. This is a conquering grace. Whereby our God and Father conquers the rebels. Makes them beloved. He draws. His drawing is effective. He puts to death the old sin nature and imparts a new nature he draws us and his drawing is irresistible that is what we mean when we speak of irresistible grace so the question is what are we to do with this picture of God's sovereign grace when we when we hear that 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 our our Jesus he's actually bigger than we thought he was he's actually more powerful than we thought he was what do we do when we hear that well first we worship we worship some of us, we, we hear of, of God's sovereignty and we struggle with it because we're confused. We, we, we want to know all the mechanics of it. 
How, do, how does it work? For some of us, that's why we struggle with God's sovereignty. But others of us, we, maybe we get it. And we struggle because if God is really that sovereign, then that means he must reign in my life. And we struggle because we actually want to be the sovereign over our lives. So in this struggling, we, we've got a dilemma. We hear the word of God. This is not the word of James. This ain't my opinion. This is the word of God. We hear it, and, and we've got a dilemma. Are we going to resist it? Are we going to resist so that I can remain on the throne of my own life? Are we going to hold our hands out, or are we going to open them? Are we going to humble ourselves before a good and gracious king? To humble ourselves, that's to worship. That is to worship with our heart's affection on Jesus. What do we do with this truth? We worship. But second, this truth of God's sovereign grace, it must inform the way we relate to the non-Christian. If we have any concept of what our, our Savior has done to rescue us from ourselves because of His grace, then that grace must translate to a graciousness with the non-believer. If we're honest with ourselves, so often we get frustrated by their sin. And what am I saying when I get frustrated by their sin? I've got amnesia, and I forget what the Lord has done in me. But sovereign grace says, rather than frustration with the sinner, I pray for the Lord God Almighty to work in them the same conquering grace that he has worked in me. Sovereign grace must inform the way we relate to the non-Christian. And thirdly, and connected to that, it gives us hope in our evangelism. God must draw the sinner and God does draw the sinner to himself. It means that they will come. It's certain. It doesn't rest on my eloquence in the presentation. It doesn't rest on me at all. My responsibility is merely to graciously love, to point to Christ, and to trust in Him for their salvation. Sovereign grace gives me hope in evangelism. That's how Jesus describes our receiving the bread. He is the bread of life, and we receive the bread by God's grace alone. But Jesus goes on in this text to tell us not merely to receive it, but to eat it. We eat the bread by abiding in Christ. Last week, I, it's hard for me to do this. We, we got to Jesus' declaration i am the bread of life and and i had to merely tee it up <laughs> it's like bringing you to the mountaintop and turning around but last week when we just when we read i am the bread of life we we talked about how that is jesus's description of his deity he's he's looking back to exodus chapter 3 when when the, when god tells moses that his name is i am <laughs> 
Yahweh in the Hebrew. And now here in John, there are a series of seven I am statements. This is the first of them. And Jesus is he's making a powerful declaration of his deity. That's what we heard last week. Well, now here in 48, Jesus repeats it. In verse 48, he says, I am the bread of life. But after he declares himself to be the bread of life, he says, come and eat. Come and eat. And this bread, it's his flesh. Verse 41 opened with grumbling. Verse 52, we've got disputing. That disputing, that's a violent argument. And again, we get it, right? Jesus saying, eat my flesh? What in the world is he talking about? We would argue about that too. What are you talking about, Jesus? But in response to the disputing, Jesus doesn't pull back. Instead, he doubles down. He's already... We've already seen their materialistic orientation. They didn't come to Jesus here and uh, at the beginning of this discussion way back in John 22 because they wanted to see Jesus. They came because Jesus fed them lunch at the beginning of John 6. They came because they wanted more bread. And Jesus takes that, that wrong orientation and, and he works with it. By connecting to it. Verse 53, so Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. This is not cleaned up polite language. This is not detached discussion. This is, this is up close. This is in your face. This is this is personal this is raw what does it mean what does it mean i believe verses 55 and 56 tells us what it means jesus says for my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and i in him what a sweet word to abide. To abide is to, is to remain, but, but not merely in close proximity. Abiding is more than that. Abiding is intimate. Abiding is enduring. Abiding is impactful. One theologian, William Hendrickson, talked about this abiding and he said it to abide is is to accept is to appropriate is to assimilate into Christ and his saving work on the cross to accept is that's, that's to receive Christ's sacrifice personally as my only hope in life and in death is to receive and trust in what he has done for me. To appropriate is to be strengthened. Is to be strengthened by Christ. Is to be strengthened by his sacrifice on my behalf. So that I can walk through this Christian life in him. 
and to assimilate is to be conformed to Christ. To have my desires, my love, my relationships, yes, even my obedience conformed to Christ. And this is all the Lord's doing. He is the first mover. But we embrace His movement in our life by abiding in Christ. In other words, Jesus is saying, eat the bread. I've got a friend in North Carolina who's a photographer. And we're all these days amateur photographers, right? We walk around carrying our own personal camera in our pockets, (laughs) But you know the difference between an amateur photographer and a professional. If you've looked, a professional just has a way of of bringing an image to life, of capturing an image in a way that that we seem to miss. My friend in North Carolina is a professional photographer. He has a business, but Matt, he has a little niche. He photographs food. (laughs) He does a lot of work with with restaurants and, and grocery stores, and he, and he takes pictures of, of their food for their advertisements. And it's amazing when you look at his, his creative work. I, I, I look at what he does, and I'm amazed by it. But here's the thing. That picture, it has no nutritional value. I can stare at that picture, I can enjoy that picture, but never once has a picture of food satisfied my hunger. Bread has to be eaten in order to give life. And the problem is, for some of us, our approach to the Christian life is a lot like looking at the picture of the bread. We have some affiliation with the church, but we like to keep it at a distance, a polite distance. We have some connection to the cultural norms of Christianity that are so prevalent in our geography. But we take the picture out of the photo album. We look at it for a little bit. We we find some enjoyment in it, and then we stick it right back and put it away and go about our business. And yet Jesus is telling us in this text that Christianity must be Christ-centered. Does that sound odd to you? He's calling us to a Christ-centered Christianity. He's not calling us to some form of cultural norms and affiliations with the church. He's calling us to a Christianity that is based on Christ on Christ alone, on our relationship in Christ, a relationship that is impactful in our lives. Jesus is saying, eat the bread. Abide in me. Look at the flow of this text. We... We can summarize these verses that I've put before you today as receive and embrace the gift of God's sovereign grace by abiding in Christ. There are highlights that we come to when we read this text. Highlights that some, for some of us are shocking and for some of us are what we live for. It's sovereign grace and abiding. 
And those are truths that are here. It's a particular emphasis we come to this week. But we opened this discussion last week. And when we opened this discussion last week, we focused on belief, on faith. As we read the beautiful description of justification by faith alone in verse 29, this is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He has sent. And this week, we, we've learned about the bestowal of that belief and about abiding in that belief. But running throughout this text, last week and this week, is a truth that we are liable to miss. There is an undergirding reminder throughout that belief has both a foundation and a future. And we've got to look there as we close out our time in this text. First, the foundation. Belief, faith, is tremendously important, but let's not be confused for a moment. Belief does not save. Belief does not save. Jesus' atoning work on the cross saves, and it's saved. In verse 51, Jesus, he's talking about the bread of life who has come down from heaven. And then he says, the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. He speaks of will giving. He's looking forward to a future giving, to a future action. And he can only mean his sacrifice on the cross. On the cross, Jesus, who was the only perfectly righteous man ever to walk the face of this earth gave himself up for the unrighteous. Jesus came to save sinners and he did it. He accomplished it on the cross as he sacrificed himself and as the God man his sacrifice was sufficient and efficient it was sufficient for all of God's beloved for all time and it was efficient in that it accomplished the work it is done it is finished Jesus didn't speak of himself as the bread to, to indicate that he would be a moral teacher or example he was pointing to the time when he would give of himself for us on the cross. And his sacrifice on our behalf actually saved the beloved of God. It is the foundation of belief, the belief which we are called to abide in. This text also clearly points beyond his death. And to his resurrection. And that is the future of belief. We include the passage that we read last week with this week. Which we must. It's all one discourse from Jesus. Then we would find a beautiful gift of the gospel. And we miss that beautiful gift when we only focus on sovereignty and union. We read the whole of that passage. We'll see that Jesus speaks of eternal life six times. And then he goes on four times to repeat the promise that on the last day he will raise us up to new life. He's speaking of his resurrection and the resurrection that you and I share in with him. As for the wages of sin, 
is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that gift is sovereignly given. Our God, He draws us out of our hardness and unbelief and into glorious, life-giving belief in Jesus, the bread of life. And for the beloved of God, that life, it begins now and extends into eternity. We will be raised up with glorified, resurrected bodies with an ability to enjoy Jesus face to face for all time. This future is all about God. And it is given to us by God, which means that hope is certain. Hope is not a wish. Hope is certain. And in that certainty of future glory, all our questions, all our struggles, all our doubts, all our fears, they will be gone. Jesus promises that future time and time again. It is certain. It is finished. And that means that I can stand before you now as a vessel <laughs> and confidently bid you come. Trust him that by his grace and by his grace alone, those whom he is drawing will come, will receive, will eat. So friends, let's stop looking at the picture. And let's feast on Christ. Father, your word is powerful, your word is effective, and I pray that you would, you would place it deep in our hearts that this word would not leave us unchanged. That we would be strengthened by your sovereign grace, that we would be drawn by your sovereign grace. Do this, we pray, that you might be glorified and we might be blessed. In Christ's name.